Bet365 sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers and with over 45 million members is the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can now follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Andres Cantor. Andres is an Argentinian-American sportscaster and pundit who works in the United States of America, providing predominantly Spanish-language commentary and analysis in sports. He works for Telemundo, which is NBC's sports Spanish-language division, um, but has been calling football matches for a very long time. Uh, and uh, he describes at the beginning of this podcast how he was the only uh, Spanish-language commentator working in America for some time. So there was ne- next to no competition, which is really interesting. Andres has commentated at World Cups. He commentates on Premier League football uh, for a Spanish-speaking American audience. He commentates on, on Liga MX too. He's absolutely fantastic at his job and uh, his his calling card, really, many of you listening will have heard it, whether you realise it comes from Andres or not, is uh, the, the sort of extenuated goal. I, I can't do it. I'm not calling, you know, I wouldn't do it justice. Um, but uh, it's, it's really become a, a calling card for him. And he's considered to just be one of the best commentators um, in world football. And uh, this year he's about to enter his 21st year at Telemundo, which is an absolutely incredible achievement and um, was previously working for another broadcaster for 15 years before that. So this guy is an eminent professional. He knows his job incredibly well. As a result of the fact that my job uh, involves me doing voiceovers and podcasts, I did geek out a little bit and ask him about pronunciations and preparation, stuff like that, which I I find fascinating. And at one point he told me uh, that... uh, you know, pre-internet to make sure that he got the pronunciations of players' names correct. He called every embassy in the United States uh, of a country that was featuring in this particular World Cup to get their assistance for a name pronunciation, which is just, I would have never thought to do that, but that is a, a, a an amazing idea. He's also done some commentary in English, so we talk about the difference between, you know, commentating in Spanish and commentating in English. We talk a little bit about the cultural difference um, between the two as well. And I couldn't help but ask Andres, who was uh, born in Buenos Aires, about the uh, Lionel Messi situation as well, to hear his uh, his take on it. But um, a fascinating interview. Thanks uh, so much to Andres for, for coming and, and featuring on the TIFO Football Podcast. I hope you um, listening enjoy this today, and uh, thank you for downloading. Now, before we get to, to the interview itself, I would like to uh, let you know about a, a very special and new deal that we have for you here at the TIFO Football Podcast. Our friends and colleagues at The Athletic uh, are launching a new introductionary deal for people to take up, should they so choose, of £1 per month. £1 a month for full access to The Athletic, which, I mean, is uh, unbelievable, really. £1 a month. I don't, I'm just going to double check my notes just to check that's true. Yes, uh, fake shuffling of paper. It is true. I knew it was true. I was just pretending uh, because I'm astounded by how incredible the deal is. £1 a month, full access, that's for everything that The Athletic release 
Um, and uh, if you're not already a subscriber, I would highly encourage you to uh, to try that out on an introductory basis um, because it really is a, a fantastic product. And hey, it helps me too. So do please do that. Uh, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And uh, yeah, I had a lovely break. I'm back now. Thanks for uh, listening to Seb and Alex in my in my um, absence. And uh, I know that, that can't have been easy. So... Much appreciated. And uh, on with today's episode. I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace. Very cool today. The very cool embrace of Andres Canto. Andres, the first thing I want to ask you is that, you know, you moved to, to the States as a teenager, um, but beforehand, you know, you grew up in, in Buenos Aires in, in Argentina, and doing uh, some reading about you, I, um, I stumbled across this, uh, this thing, you, you, you were very inspired by a, an Argentinian commentator called Jose Maria Munoz, who was a radio commentator, is, is that right? That is correct. Uh, he was the radio commentator. Uh, way back in the days that I grew up, radio was very, very powerful, even more, I would say, than television. You know, we only had uh, four television channels. Only one of them broadcasted football on TV uh, and only one game per weekend, obviously. So the kids of my age, we all listened to him. He had a great rhythm to his calls. He had a great vocabulary. And it was just lots of fun listening to him. So we all pretty much grew up uh, with the radio Bluetooth to, to our ears, uh, listening to our teams. And whenever we went out to the park with our friends or in the club with you know, our, our teams, we emulated his calls when you know we scored the goal. So he was very, very popular. I mean, he was the number one guy that everyone listened to back in the day in Argentina. So... He was a big influence later on, obviously, in my career. You know, reading about him, it says that he was the, the considered to be the godfather of uh, shouting goal, 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 goal as a, as a goal was scored. And apparently that is because uh, he wanted people who were further away from the radio or people who'd left the room to be able to hear that a goal had happened. Is that really the genesis of, uh, of that art? It might be, you know, the, the goal goal, uh, at least in Latin America, has had its own evolution uh, he was, uh, you know, he didn't have one long goal call. He did, like you just said, uh, you know, he did call it several times. And that might be the genesis of why he did it. Before him, it was just, uh, you know, pretty much like the English uh, broadcasters do it. Just he scored, it's a goal. Uh, but then, you know, I, I don't know what it was, if it's just because we became more passionate, because football became more important or what it is that, you know, we became more and more enthusiastic and effusive in our goal calls. But yes, uh, he did have a, a style where he called the goal call, perhaps not as long, but, you know, short and repeatedly, he said the world goal after each score. And what was it for you? So when you started uh, calling and when you, you know, developed your, your signature long goal call, what is it for you about that? Is it is it are you trying to display um, a passion or um, yeah? What do you think? Well, it's really the way we feel the game um, nowadays. 
if you, you know, see the stands in Latin America in any league game, Copa Libertadores game or national team game, uh, you will see, you know, whenever a goal is scored that, you know, people yell goal the same way broadcasters yell goal. Uh, that is our way of, of feeling for the game, I guess. And broadcasters have this particular style where, you know, at the end and the culmination of a, of a good play, whenever there is a score, we just let, you know, our passion take over and, and yell goal the way we do. It's, it's something pretty much cultural than I would say anything else. Yeah, I want to come back and, and ask you a little bit about the differences between the culture of um, of uh, English language and Spanish language commentary. For now, though, can I ask you, I mean, you've been, you know, you're, you're about to, or you're celebrating 20 years of, uh, of working at Telemundo as the, as the lead commentator. You're going into your 20, 21st year, which is an, an incredible achievement. Um, do you still have the passion for football? Like when you, you know, when you're, uh, when a goal goes in on a, your average midweek game and you, you do your goal call, does it, does it still feel the same way it did 10, 20 years ago? Uh, yes, uh, I, I'm going into my 21st year in Telemundo and I worked uh, 15 years at the other network calling games. So I've been around for a long while. And I, I always say, uh, just like that, you know, when you read, uh, when you ask a 36-year-old player, uh, do you still like football? Do you like, you know, waking up, waking up in the morning and going to training? And they always say the same thing. They always say, you know, the day that I don't feel like waking up and training, that day I will think about retirement. And in my case, and I, I don't know about, you know, the other broadcasters, but yes, I have uh, the, the best day of the week, uh, which happens to fall pretty much every week on a weekend, um, is either Saturday or Sunday when I get to call a game. And I call it with the same enthusiasm as day one. So the day that I don't have that fire within me, and that desire to go call a game, that day I'll be thinking that something is wrong. But for now, uh, I enjoy getting in the booth, going to the stadium, wherever I happen to get to call the game. That is the best day and the best uh, two hours of, of my week. Yeah. Hey, maybe, maybe you'll be going until your voice gives out. Do you think maybe, what is it? Is it will it be you or your voice first? Oh, I hope neither. Uh, you know, in 30 plus years, I haven't lost my voice once, I mean, I became very hoarse and had to fight a couple of uh, broadcasts uh, to make it to the end. But, uh, you know, I will make sure that obviously I take care of, of my working instruments, which, which are my pipes, and I hope uh, they last a long time. So let's go back to the, the beginning then. Um, you moved to the States as a teenager. How, how does one get into football commentary? How, how, how did you do it at the time? Well, basically, I, I went to college here at USC, the University of Southern California. I took uh, four years of journalism. I, I always wanted to be a writer. As a matter of fact, I did not envision being neither on radio or television. I guess you say I had one of those lucky breaks because the only television network at the time called me for an audition uh to record two soccer games i recorded the first one doing color commentary we broke for lunch and the person who ended up being my boss and that hired me within a week said you know we are really looking for a play-by-play -play announcer do you think you can do the second game 
Uh, you can do the play-by-play -play on the second game that we're going to tape. And I said, sure, why not? Uh, I gave him, though, the heads up that I had never done play-by-play -play in my life other than in my head when I was a kid, you know, listening to the radio. And I guess he liked my style and offered me a job uh, within a week. And why do I say that it's one of those lucky breaks in life? Because way back then, as I said, there was only one television network in Spanish in the U.S. And it happened to be the only one that showed soccer or football. So I became, uh, I, I auditioned for the only job in the country of uh, a football <laughs> player, player, player announcer. So I was very lucky to be the only football play-by-play -play announcer of that network for the next 15 years and uh, ended up calling an average, I would say, of 200 to 250 matches per calendar year because we started picking up lots of properties, the World Cup, World Cup qualifying, Copa America, European Cup, uh, Liga MX from Mexico, etc. And I was the only play-by-play -play announcer for 15 years or 14 years in, in that network. So I had the dream job in that time. Let's talk about the, the, the World Cups then. What was the first World Cup that you, that you worked at? The very first one I covered was Mexico in 1986 for Editorial Atlantida of Argentina as a written journalist for El Grafico magazine, which used to be like the Bible in Hispanic media throughout uh, the Hispanic world, not only in Argentina, but everywhere uh, that Spanish was read and spoken. Yeah. And also I covered uh, for the same company for another more like political based magazine called Somos. So I covered uh, as a print journalist the 1986 World Cup. I was already around the, you know, the, the press, my press friends of El Grafico magazine in Spain in 1982. Uh, but then, you know, I was 19. I had a great time just, you know, being around them. And then my very first one as an accredited media was 1986 in, in Mexico. And do you ever uh, wish that you had been calling games at the time? And did, um, did you see Diego Maradona's goal of the century? Were you at that game? I was. Um, wow. I wish, I mean, in retrospect, uh, I didn't have yet any inclinations to become a broadcaster, uh, nor neither in radio nor television. So I, in, in retrospect, I could tell you, I wish... I had a microphone in my hand for, for the goal of the century. Um, and uh, I mean, that was one of the happiest moments of my life, just being there and, and witnessing that goal. And if you care to ask me about the first one, uh, in all honesty, we didn't figure out that it was, you know, scored with his hand until we got back to the hotel and saw the replays uh, you know, on television. So we were just, you know, we left the stadium with the, um, you know, with a clear image of that second goal uh, that stands in, you know, my my thoughts, my memory, my mind uh, every day. I mean, that, that was the most uh, exquisite goal I ever uh, witnessed in person, at least.
Can I say, from the perspective of an Englishman uh, having this conversation, I'm delighted to be having it now because I feel like enough time has passed that the so-called, you know, hand of God goal, the controversy, whatever, has died down enough. People aren't upset anymore. Uh, and we can just, uh, you know, we can relish uh, the goal of the century because it's, it's almost a shame that they took place in the in the same game. One of those, in this country at least, overshadowed the other. Um, but uh, it's a fantastic goal. Yeah, and, and of course now the discussion uh, becomes even greater, even though, you know, it, it, we are very many years removed from the controversy, but with the implementation of VAR, you know, the, there's lots of pundits and I've read that, you know, the uh, hand of God wouldn't have counted and the Lampard yeah. goal would have stood. And then, you know, you don't know what would have happened in 1966, but I don't think it's fair to to bring, you know, technology of 2020 and start talking about things that happened in a totally different era of football. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with a ball that wouldn't even fly in the same direction or in the same way, sure. or with, with boots that weren't, you know, as technologically advanced or, or whatever, right? Exactly, exactly. No, I think so. Um, so you did you, you did call games at 1990 World Cup though, right? Yes, that was my first World Cup in television. I called every single one of those uh, games in Italy, uh, 90. I've called every single World Cup game in the US, 1994, and every single game in 1998. Again, I was the only play-by-play -play announcer um, don't ask me why they, the network did not hire a second play-by-play uh, -play <laughs> announcer for the World Cups, at least, you know, with so many games in such a short period of uh, time. But, uh, hey, I, I wasn't complaining. <laughs> no, certainly not, right? And, and it, it makes it more difficult for me to ask you this question, I guess, because if there wasn't a, a lot of competition for, uh, for US-based uh, you know, Spanish-language commentary, then maybe this doesn't really apply. But I, I just wanted to ask for commentators, and indeed, I suppose, for journalists as well, anyone working within football, uh, is, is going to and working at the World Cup the same in those roles as it is as, as a player? You know, presumably, particularly in the UK, where... There's a there's a huge number of obviously English language commentators and there's a lot of competition for places. Um, presumably, it's it's um, it's a position of real real sort of uh, achievement and real honour to go and 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 call games at, at tournaments like that. Do, do do you feel like that even though there wasn't as much competition for you at the at the time? I mean, on the basis that they clearly didn't need it. Sure. Well, nowadays there is uh, lots of competition, so much so that either. You're a right holder and you are allowed to be accredited. You are pretty much accredited by default because you're a rights holder. Or uh, if you're not, you have to go through the U.S. Soccer Federation and get yourself on a very, very long list. And then they will decide or FIFA will decide, you know, however many people from a certain country gets accredited because there is no space and, and room for everyone at every World Cup. Uh, and just like I said, um, you know, in my answer, when you asked me whether, you know, after 30 plus years of calling games on television, I still have, you know, the urge and the, I like going to call games uh, and I do it with the same passion. Uh, I always have the same analogy for uh, journalists and broadcasters making it to the World Cup 
it's you know the pinnacle of a player's career and it's the moment that everyone waits for in journalism i mean everyone that is obviously covering football on a weekly basis i am pretty sure uh, earn, yearns to to be at the world cup every four years so yes uh, i think it's 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 something that you know i look forward to every four years to cover a world cup because it's it's something that that it's probably the, the greatest sporting event in the world and to be there in person it's it's really really nice you, you've covered uh, football in english language as well haven't you I have. I called the Sydney Olympics in 2000, both men and women's for NBC Sports. Um, and that was a challenge in itself, uh, switching languages. But it was lots of fun uh, too as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because presume. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I, um, in my spare time, I'm not a very good one. But I'm a, I'm a musician, and so when I write, uh, I often feel like I, I try to write with, a, with a rhythm. When I listen to football commentators, I feel like they are speaking in, in a kind of rhythm, and that perhaps it's a, it's a subtle thing. Um, but I just wonder how, how it works in, in your mind when you're working. But so when you, when you uh, you know, when you're sort of translating, I suppose, in your head to, to English in order to um, to do that, how do you feel it affects the the flow? Do, can, do you feel as, as, as free and, and liberated as you would be doing Spanish commentary? Or what, what are the differences? Well, your appreciation of what happened to me was exactly what you just said. Right. Um, at the beginning, in the first couple of games, I found myself translating in my head the phrases that I would use in Spanish into English. Yeah. And not only was I becoming, you know, slow in doing so, but I was kind of cheating myself and the audience. Um, so I, I don't know how I made the switch. I, I don't know who realized, I mean, I, somehow I realized I was doing this and that I wasn't very happy in the way that I was broadcasting the games. Nobody told me so. It was just, uh, you know, I, I realized that I couldn't go on this way. So I stopped translating the play-by-play. I didn't think about what was happening in Spanish to change it into English. I just let myself go into what I thought uh, naturally in English. I mean, I'm bilingual, as you can tell. Yeah. I speak with a heavy accent, but I mean, I have I have my flow and my rhythm in English when I call games. I mean, I haven't called too many more after uh, 2000, to be honest, but I realized that I had to uh, just let myself go in English. And whatever came out of my mouth, they had to be processed and thought in English and not in Spanish and translated. So then I got a much better rhythm uh, within my style, within the, the way I feel for the game. I, I didn't cheat my style or I didn't change my style because I was speaking in English. I was as enthusiastic and and, and effervescent as, as I am in, in Spanish, in English, but letting myself go just in, in the English language and not translating. Hey Alex, did you know that this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming? I'll be honest, no, not not until you just hit me with that. 
Seb, did you know that Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family duels? Precision is important in that area. It very much is. It yes. very much is. And I'm, I'm excited today, gang, because Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job over here. So you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. And that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. I'm a multitasker, so I like to do everything at once. Uh, And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20. That's EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving, gang. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think like as an art form, um, not, not to, com- to compare it to football again, but obviously it's because what you are commentating on. I wonder if, you know, what you're describing, I suppose, is, is, is instinct. And I'm thinking about when I watch the football and I'm listening to... to uh, I, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of Peter Drury, but he's an a, a English language uh, football commentator and he, he's very poetic and, you know, I think he, he's fantastic. But it sounds a lot of the time that he's just... He's just instinctually reacting to the game. And your journey as a viewer is not just to be told information by uh, the commentator, but it's to almost be kind of taken on an, uh, an emotional journey with them to experience the game uh, as they do. Do you think there's a, there's, a, there's a truth in that or am I being too highfalutin about it? No, it's 100% truth. I mean, when you're watching television, you're watching... Uh, for yourself, what is going on. Uh, you need to educate a little bit the people that are not very tactical savvy, but for the better part of, of the broadcast, you have to keep uh, people glued to their seats and wanting to watch the game, uh, showing a lot of passion, a lot of instinct. I mean, I can bore anyone to death, especially in the Premier League where there are so many stats uh, that to yeah. me uh, are totally irrelevant to, to the game. But I mean, I could bore my audience for 90 minutes with all the <laughs> stats that I'm given every weekend to call a Premier League game. Um, I highlight the ones that I think are best for my broadcast and my style. Um, I really could care less if Aston Villa scored, you know, a corner kick goal on the 12th day of September in, you know, 1955, and they score again, well, so be it. It doesn't, it's just a stat, it's just a figure. Mm. But I have, uh, I think that the broadcaster, the play-by-play announcer has to be, uh, first of all, very genuine. Uh, He has to have knowledge of the game itself. He has to be very uh, has has to have uh, instinct of what is going on to try to anticipate, uh, you know, make it fun, and uh, most of all, be very energetic in the way he expresses himself. And uh, at least in, in Spanish, that's the way uh, I feel conceptually what encapsulates being a good play-by-play announcer. And then. Uh, you know, trying to put as much energy into the broadcast 
as if the game you're doing on a weekend is the World Cup final. And can I ask you, uh, in terms of your preparation, um, let's say you know, you're know you commentating on a Premier League game this weekend, for example, how do you go about preparing uh, for that job? Because there's so much going on there, isn't there? I've seen like photographs of other commentators' notes that they take with them, and it's a bit like looking at sort of abstract paintings with every, every bit of the piece of paper covered in something. How, what, what, what's your approach to it? I am given by our production team lots of information. It's, it's wonderful, to tell you the truth. Uh, the way the Premier League, the statisticians and the league itself keeps tabs on absolutely everything that is going on uh, around the teams. So I've gone on weekends where I've called two to three games with half of my notes, not unused, unread. Yeah. Because, you know, as I say, I highlight... Uh, what I think is the or are, are the most important stats to be given in a broadcast. So I study them. I mean, I read every single page that they send me. I highlight what I think it's the most relevant information that I need to have handy. Obviously, I do have the information of the players. I don't want to be uh, caught unprepared in terms of whether you know it was the first. Uh, goal of the of the season, and I'm not talking obviously about week one. I'm talking about doing a game in week 12. And if Wijnaldum scores for Liverpool, I don't want to be uh, unprepared and say that that was his first goal. You have to understand that I might have not done all 11 prior Liverpool games, so yeah. I need to be prepared exactly on on each uh, player that is on the pitch uh, on on their stats. And then uh, I find that nowadays, you know, to uh, the best preparation, anyways, I would say is watching the games uh, of the week prior to that, or as many games as you can um, of the teams that you're going to do. So nothing will surprise you. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they have a set piece that they that they worked on. Uh, you could anticipate that that might be coming again, or that they played it that way. Uh, and just watching a lot of games or as many games as, as possible. And then you can read, you know, I mean, I can read the Liverpool echo before any anyone wakes up in, in Liverpool. Yeah. Because I have the electronic edition at midnight here in the US. Uh, you know, people are still sleeping sleeping in, in Liverpool. And, you know, by midnight I have read uh, tomorrow's edition of the paper and you know you get lots of very good uh, articles and, and life stories and, and things that are going on around the team and the players so you know I prepare myself uh, like that with lots of resources either teams websites uh, local newspapers and just general information that you can find uh, on the web plus all the documentation that the league sends us. And what about, this has always um, interested me, pronunciations of player names. When a new player uh, who maybe moves from a part of uh, a league in a part of the world that we're not paying as much attention to, when he joins a league that you're commentating on, uh, do you ever have moments where you are afraid that you have got the pronunciation wrong or is there a procedure, someone tells you how to say the name? I, that is my obsession, to tell you the truth. Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it always has been. Back in 1994 when my career like really took off because of the notoriety that my work was getting 
here in in the U.S. because the World Cup happened to be in the U.S. and, and you know our broadcasts were doing I don't know seventy percent share of the ratings and everyone was watching. Not only did it catch everyone's attention the way I called goal, but one of the very good accolades was that my style always is to pronounce everyone's uh, every player that touches the ball pretty much. Uh, even though you can see it on television, but you know people are not. Even though there might be a back uh, back and forth pass between I don't know David Silva and Fernandinho, you know I I, I will say David Silva Fernandinho Fernandinho David Silva. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the accolades I had in 1994 was that I I tried to pronounce. I mean my pronunciation was pretty much uh, exactly the way every last name sounded in its original language. Nice. And I, you know, my preparation way back then, look how how old I am or how old, or how things evolved. I've called every single embassy uh, in the US <laughs> wow. of the World Cup teams that played uh, in that World Cup for help because there was no YouTube, there was no you know, no one I could yeah. pretty no much rely on. Yeah. No, nowadays, nowadays it's very easy. Either you look up, if you if you look up uh, an interview with a player, uh, pretty much the day that they sign for the team, uh, and they have a weird last name, most likely the team's website will ask him, Hey, so how do you pronounce how we how should we pronounce your name? I remember yeah. just recently Bergwin, yeah. uh, the yeah. Dutch that came into Tottenham, uh, they asked him. And uh, if not, you can find the pronunciation. You know, there's probably a YouTube video on how to pronounce it correctly. So it's it's much easier. So I do care a lot about pronunciation. I'm I'm trying to think. I'm I'm stumbling because. I always have trouble with a player. I'm trying to think the player uh, and the team because it's it's a, it's an English last name. I believe, no, it's an Irish last name, but it's very hard to pronounce because it's got an H in the middle. And I forget the team and the player. Doherty. Um, Doherty from Wolverhampton now at Spurs? No, 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 no it wasn't in... I think it's Cartwright, was it? Uh, Cartwright, yeah, maybe. Cartwright, yeah, maybe. I don't know, but do you know anyway, what? Even, that's even kid, complicated huh? here. Like, I think there's even between England and Ireland, there are such different ways of saying those those same names that it's. I'm not right, sure that right. I don't know what is right anymore. You know what the, some of the or, origins are. Hey Seb, did you know that Harry's sponsors the Tifo Football Podcast? I do now. And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. I have a beard, though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. 
I, I wanted to ask you um, about the uh, the difference between, um, or the cultural difference, I suppose, between Spanish language and English language commentary. Um, now, this might be unfair. I don't listen to a lot of Spanish language commentary, and the stuff that I do hear is, pre- you know, normally um, an addition to an incredible football moment. So, obviously, the expectation is that there is more emotion uh, inserted into those moments. But I get the impression that um, Spanish language commentary uh, is just more passionate and more exciting than, than English language commentary generally speaking tends to be do you do you think that's true firstly and if 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 it is why is that I believe it's a cultural thing uh, and I want to be very respectful because it might be a, a question of style really because to generalize that I am more passionate than my English counterpart might be unfair to to the person that is calling the same game in English, he might have as much passion and fire for the game and, and yeah. love for the game as, as I do, but it's just a, a question of style. I remember, I, I don't know if you've seen this, and this, going back to this point, I got, um, you know, of course, being from Argentina, I, you know, I, I followed Marcelo Bielsa's career pretty much all over the place. And I got, uh, I was watching the Leeds-Swansea game uh, when Pablo Hernandez scored in the 90th minute for the for the win. And that was like the turning point that allowed Leeds, there were like two or three weekends left in the championship. Mm-hmm. And I remember that goal. I mean, that was, obviously it was a local broadcast that I picked up. I, I picked it up on, on YouTube, it was the Leeds home broadcast. And let me tell you, I mean, they were as passionate as anyone. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they lost it. I mean, yeah. I was surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised, because usually you don't, unless, uh, you know, all the local team commentaries are like that, but the ones that, you know, I've listened to, for a long time are, are more subdued, but whoever was doing the, the play-by-play that day, I mean, pretty much lost it. No, yes, no. You know, they started yelling <laughs> and saying, you know, you know, that this is it for sure. And I mean, there was lots, lots of emotion in that broadcast. So again, going back to the question, I think it's pretty much cultural. We are more, I mean, you can tell, uh, and this, and again, it's, it's very hard to generalize. But, you know, just get on a, on a tourist bus, on a hop-on, hop-off tourist bus in Rome, let's say. You will pretty much know who the, who the Latin American tourists are and who the European tourists are. I mean, I've, I've been on a train in Switzerland just talking, not out loud, just talking regularly with, you know, the folks that were with me. Yeah. And a lady came over and said, you know, could you please lower your voice? <laughs> um, so I, I believe it's it's a cultural thing, to, to be honest. Uh, and I don't want to say, because it, it, I cannot generalize that the English broadcasters are less passionate because they're probably uh, as much, they, they have as much passion as, as we do, just they express it differently. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. And and as as someone from the the UK myself, I think 
uh, I agree. I think it is a cultural thing. I, I, I think it expands very deeply into the, you know, the sort of relative psyches of each country because you, you see it expressed differently in other art forms like dance as well, right? Where, I mean, like, you know, the kind of traditional uh, or cliche, I suppose, South American dance is a very vibrant and expressive thing. In England, I feel like people are kind of a little a little stuffed up. They have the passion, but there's, for whatever reason, they don't express it in quite the same way. I could ask you one more question before I let you go. And this is purely on the basis that you are, uh, you know, exceptionally knowledgeable about football and uh, you are from Argentina. Have you been following the uh, the Lionel Messi situation over the past few weeks? <laughs> have I? <laughs> it's, it's a non-question, I really. Sleep- I, I, I was sleepless. <laughs> <laughs> what do you yes, make of it? What's your take? My take is that he was, I could not believe, I said it from the onset, that I, when he announced that he was leaving, that he had to have something prearranged with another team. I could not believe that he would jump in the pool without water. Yeah. Uh, I think he was extremely bad. Uh, he had very, very bad advice from either his father or his lawyers. Uh, I mean, I cannot believe that his lawyers told him that um, he still had time to to say that he was leaving and to um, because the release clause was still in in due time to be executed. I cannot believe that this happens at that level. We're talking about the most important athlete of our time, yeah, and. Um, I am sure, you know, it wasn't an impulsive decision to say, hey, I'm leaving and for him to send that notarized note uh, to the team saying he was leaving. He had to have advice from the people that manage him, uh, which was extremely poor, whoever it was. Um, but what, uh, what I cannot believe is his lawyers. I mean, this there was a contractual, uh, a, a very very big contractual breakup here, so he had to have advice from from lawyers, and it's it's unheard of what happened. I mean, how can you misinterpret what is written on on the most important contract in sports history? I mean. Uh, I'm pretty sure, that it, and, and when I say this, I'm not talking only about the money that he earns. It's probably the most intricate contract ever, you know, because of his image rights. Is you know, there, there are probably so many uh, caveats to that contract that I cannot believe how badly, uh, how poorly, how what poor judgment he had to do what he did at the time that that he did it. I, I cannot believe. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation. Hey, well, listen, Andres, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. I I um I really appreciate it, and best of luck with your twenty uh, first year working for Telemundo. Congratulations for such um an incredible and long career. Thank you very much, and good luck to all in this new Premier League season. Looking forward to it. Let's see if uh, Liverpool can repeat. It's going to be interesting. Uh, we were, I mean, I was really hoping that. Messi would land in, in Manchester City so I could get to, to do play-by-play on these games every weekend, but uh, I guess not, and I'll just maybe next keep year. enjoying the magic. Yeah, maybe next year, but yeah. for now, I'll keep enjoying the magic of Liverpool, of City. Chelsea uh, has uh, had a, a terrific summer in terms of signings, yeah. 
uh, Manchester United as well. So it's going to be interesting. Thank you.